We're going to carry on with the series on rebuilding. Pindawake, which just means rebuild. And um, we're looking at rebuilding a city in the story of Nehemiah. And it's the rebuilding of a people through the rebuilding of the structures that make up the city. We get, today we get to chapter 6 and we see uh, a man under attack, under deep personal attack. But at the same time we see mission accomplished. His initial task that he had set himself in the presence of the king uh, is accomplished. We also meet a guy with a rather unfortunate sort of like surname. I don't know if surnames, um, you know, sometimes strike you as rather odd. Talking of striking, Cindy had a dentist who was called Dr. Hammer. And um, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not too sure I'd be wanting that. In any case, we'll meet one or two interesting characters as we go in the reading. So when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, so obviously this is a list of the opponents and enemies of, of the, uh, the Jewish people at that time. When word came to them that I'd rebuilt the wall, and there was no gap left in it. Though up to that time, I had not yet set the doors in the gates. So they nearly done. they nearly done. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come. Let us meet together in one of the villages of the plain of Ono, or Ono, which is a pretty clear, obvious, uh, you know, answer. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I'm carrying out a great project. I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave them the same answer. Now the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, this year say, and Geshem says it's true, gossip, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore are building a wall, imputed motive. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. And you've even appointed prophets, so you've got prophets in your pay, to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. You know, King Artaxerxes, the, you know, the head honcho. I wonder how. <laughs> this report will get back to the king. Intimidation, threat. So come. Let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. <laughs> they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. The enemy's goals. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. His objective, your hands get weak. My prayer, now strengthen my hands. 
opposite spirit to what the enemy's agenda is. And one day I went to the house of Shemaiah with the surname of Deliah. Now if you've got a prophet whose surname is Deliah, then you know. Um, And he was shut up in his home. He should have stayed shut up. But in any case, he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. He's done it like a whole little nursery rhyme. Because that's how people often thought the prophets would uh, speak. They'd speak with this kind of rhythmic rap, you know. And so rapping was a sign you were under the anointing. But I said, should a man like me run away? (laughs) Should someone like me go into the temple or save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they'd done. Remember also, and yeah, we have a character, we don't even know what she did, but the prophet Noadiah. And how she and the rest of the prophets, notice they had some lady prophets in the time. Problem wasn't her gender, the problem was what their motive was. They were trying to intimidate me. And then this. And so the wall was completed in the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard this, All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Amen. But notice this. (laughs) In spite of the enemy kind of knowing he's taken a shot. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah. So now the outside enemy has been like, Clearly defeated. The nobles of Judah were sending many letters, emails, whatsapps to Tobiah. And replies from Tobiah kept coming from him. He was, you know, he had a TikTok channel and he was sending it in. And many in Judah were under oath to him. Since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshalem, son of Berechiah. We all know who those people are. I'm not going to go any further. But the bottom line is they were as thick as thieves. There's all these alliances. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds. Like what? Like like What? Reporting to me his good deeds and telling him whatever I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So the attacks get really personal. Like they get dialed up and aimed at Nehemiah. Just when the enemy should be backing off, the chapter starts, the walls are nearly done, the gates haven't been put, you know. So like the stonework is done, and they're ready to finish it off. The enemy dials up his efforts. Remember the prophets from the 70s, Simon and Garfunkel, slip sliding away. When you're nearing your destination, the more you're tempted to slip slide away, and the enemy knows it. And so as they're getting there, he's thinking they will... They will they'll kind of settle for what they've got. 
and they will leave us with significant vulnerabilities to exploit. Critical time. The enemy wants to keep you from your assignment. And he wants you to think, well, I've done enough now. And instead of actually really finishing and doing this well, and the attacks are deeply personal, they are relational, they're not just from the outside, they're now from inside Jerusalem, and they masquerading as spiritual. And they have this aim to intimidate Nehemiah, make him and his people afraid, and to drive a wedge between them and one another, between them and Nehemiah, and between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes, the king that authorized the project. Verse 9, they were, they were trying to frighten us. Verse 13, 14, and 19, <laughs> they were doing this to intimidate me. They were hired to intimidate me. Fear and intimidation. You see, fear can generate crazy behaviors. And this is the enemy's tactic. So I'm going to identify four enemy's tactics. Then we're going to try and look at how this applies to us and, uh, and then land from there. So the first tactic is he calls for compromise. They want to have a chat. Don't be unreasonable. Hear us out. We're not really happy, so meet us halfway. Come to the border. Now, the border just happened to be like in almost pretty much, you know, the plains of, oh, no, we're literally on the very edge of remotely safe territory. <laughs> it was Philistine territory, and it was, um, it was um, Sanballat's territory, and, and then Geshen, the Arabs going to move from this side, uh, move from down south, and they were all offering to come together, so they're going to bring all their guys one of the interesting things is they're saying to Nehemiah, go to the very outer limits of your safety. You see, the enemy wants you on the outer limits of God's will. So you've got territory. He wants you on the very edges looking over and hoping something out there will happen. And, and Nehemiah says, no, no, no. I'm staying in the very center of the terrain and task and assignment that God has given me. I don't need to worry about the boundaries. They will take care of themselves if I take care of holding the center. It would have required a large military escort, which would have not only interrupted Nehemiah's work, but the work of the builders themselves. Why? Because his builders were his soldiers. They had bricks and swords, you know, in left and right hand. That's how they were doing it. His watchmen were also his workers. And Nehemiah understands that the enemy draws us to the edges, to the place of compromise. He says they were looking to harm me. The enemy draws us into compromise in order to harm us. Now he's going to tell us this. I draw you there to harmonize with you. But that's what compromise is. We go into his territory. We go into his place. And we step out of the center of where God has called us to. And the clear task that we know we assigned to. And we think if I can just harmonize with my neighbors. Even though they oppose my task and assignment. My life will be easier. It's a very subtle kind of invitation to talk. But it intends greater harm. 
And Nehemiah defeats the compromise by reminding himself and everyone else of where the center is. I'm, I'm doing this great task. This is where I am meant to be. This is what I am going to do. And I don't need to entertain this conversation because, quite frankly, it's got nothing to do with my assignment. The enemy wants to tempt us away from our assignment into God, into the place of compromise on the boundaries of that existence. And his motive is to harm you. He's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, said Jesus if I spiritualize this for a moment. So the place of compromise, the second thing is, there are conspiracy theories that are abounding. Sanballat sends an open, unsealed letter. Everyone's reading it on its way from Samaria across into, um, into Jerusalem. And it's laden with conspiracy narratives, unfounded claims, accusations, and just plain gossip. Now, it's true that they were building a wall. <laughs> but it's completely untrue they were planning a national rebellion and a rival kingdom. Now, it's complete fiction. I mean, Nehemiah says of it in verse 8, nothing like what you're saying is happening. I mean, he, he could have been replying to a lot of people on planet Earth today. You're just making it up out of your head. And how much conspiracy abounds when people just start making stuff out of their head? I mean, for what reason, we'll see later. But what we must understand is that our mental fiction has still the power to shape and harm the real world. Don't think when we entertain conspiracy theories that they do not contain actual harm. Words can kill. Words can bring life. They can heal. They can elevate. They can build up. They can tear down. They can curse. And when we assemble words into conspiracy theories that have a grain of truth, but impute a whole lot of untrue motives, we're being deeply unfair to the person. And we're giving the enemy a free run. So those are the first two points. Maybe that's what you would expect from your enemy. He's going to be sly. He's going to have a go at you. But your own people, the first one is compromise. The second one is this, this conspiracy theories projected onto Nehemiah and, and to his people. And the third is this prophetic betrayal. As I said before, you know, if your surname is Shemaiah, son of Deliah, um, I'd already be suspicious. Nehemiah was because this guy said he is contained to his house, but the moment Nehemiah walks through the door, he says, let's run to the temple. And we're going to go and hide in the temple, and we're going to go and lock the door. And he's given this, uh, this prophecy. It's a, it's a rhythmic uh, ditty, as it were. And, you know, it's a little bit like the cat in the hat, da-da-da-da. It's going to stick in your memory. You just hear it, and it's got the ability. It's, it's like a good song. It's just got a hook on it, and it's going to go in. And it finishes with, they're coming to kill you at night. They're coming to kill you. And it's meant to go into his subconscious and kind of sit there and grab hold of his spirit and make him afraid. 
Now we learn of several other prophets, part of this prophetic betrayal. The unknown prophetess, Noadiah. And, and they're actively seeking to intimidate and stir up fear. That's the spirit in which they're prophesying. They're prophesying out of fear and to stir up fear. You see, they're afraid they're going to lose something. We'll see that in a minute. And so when they speak, they speak fear. They speak out of the spirit that they're in. And they speak intimidation because they're feeling afraid and intimidated. They're afraid they're going to lose something. Nehemiah responds by recognizing that what he is being told is not from the Lord. Number one, he says, it's, it's not in my calling and my assignment. Why should a man like me? Listen, I'm called to be the governor, and my assignment is to build these walls, and I have that approval from the king. This is not in my calling and assignment. Be clear on your calling. <laughs> the second thing is, it's contrary to Scripture. The law of Moses dictated that only priests were allowed to enter the temple itself. I mean, behind the doors. So you could go into the temple precinct. You could go to the altar of sacrifice. You could go and worship at the temple, but only the priests went in the temple. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was not allowed to do it. Nehemiah says, how can you call me to sin in the name of God? I know what my calling is not. <laughs> I know what my calling is. And in the Old Testament for Nehemiah, he was not free to wander into the temple. Now, it's an interesting thing in the last chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah marches into the temple, bursts open the doors that have been hired out to Tobiah, and chucks his stuff on the street and beats the priest who had given Tobiah access to the temple. <laughs> now you go, Nehemiah, not allowed in the temple. Motive matters. <laughs> Let's just say that. Nehemiah went behind the closed doors of the temple and cleared the temple. But he knows in this matter, <laughs> to do so would be a sin because its engine room is fear. And so the spirit behind this is fear and intimidation and not faith. And so he recognizes that to obey this prophecy would drive a wedge between him and the Lord as well as him and his people, and also between him and the king who has given him this task. Now, you know, we're reading a summarized thing. Nehemiah gives us his summary response. I don't want to make it sound as though this was, you know, dead simple. You sometimes have to think long and hard to discern what the real issues are when you are faced with this kind of thing. And the answer is not simply to d dismiss all prophecies. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, do not treat prophecy with contempt. <laughs> Chuck out the evil. Cling to what is good. Recognizing that prophecy may well come with both good and bad that are mingled and mixed into that space. People who have genuine, listen to me, people who have genuine prophetic gifting can and still do get their prophecies wrong. And we're going to look at why. Really, really important. They can get them very wrong. 
when they fail to recognize the influences on their words, their thoughts, and their prayers, and on what they are seeing and hearing and saying. And it doesn't mean that we have to dismiss all prophecy. It just means we have to test every prophecy. Because people are often not able to see their own stuff. And why do I say this? Well, this Nehemiah discerns in these things. They were being paid. This is distorted by money. They were intermarried with these guys. This is distorted by family loyalties and alliances. And this is distorted by the people's quest for power and influence. And they have formed alliances with rulers who are yesterday's rulers. And they know that as these walls go up, so Tobiah and Sanballat and Gershom and others will no longer govern this place. And they have had the power in the name of those external influences. And if these walls succeed, my path to power has been taken from me. You get that? Their alliances that have given them success and money and influence and made them to be nobles and prophets and priests is going to be taken from them. And this leads us to probably the most significant and last enemy tactic. So there's compromise, there's conspiracy, there's prophetic betrayal, and then there's toxic alliances. As the project unfolds, Nehemiah sees the distress of his people, the broken walls, the burnt gates, the desperate hunger, the loss of income. Assets are, are gone because of the nobles, the wealthy, and the ruling class. Together with their prophets and priests, they have formed toxic alliances with the national enemies to preserve the status quo. These alliances are threefold. They intermarriage. So obviously there's sex. Richard Foster identifies some of the greatest weaknesses in the church throughout the ages as money, sex, and power. they all in the text here. And they, they form the bed of the alliances that are being made. So the first one is intermarriage. The other is business and money. And these guys have trade and, and, and arrangements. And the other, obviously, is the power and influence they get out of those alliances and with that kind of money. So here's the thing. When somebody, no matter what the organization, including church, doesn't matter what, in or outside church, when some people are actively defending and upholding dysfunctional structures and broken systems, you can know this, they are deriving some sort of power or some sort of meaning or some sort of belonging or some sort of support and benefit from the brokenness. They've got a vested interest in the thing staying broken. And you can show them, listen, this thing is defeating our mission. But if we make a change, I can't lead the worship anymore. <laughs> or if we make a change, I can't control this ministry anymore. Or if we make a change, I won't have the treasury anymore. If we make a change, I can't do this anymore. And you can know that when people are afraid of healthy change, it's because of one of these reasons. And they have found a way to form an alliance that is feeding one of those things. I said to the prayer meeting before, and guys, this is a tough sermon to preach. 
But we have to face up to what the text is actually showing us and Nehemiah is explaining. And so when we don't want things to be healthy and whole, it's probably because we have developed, in the language of deliverance, soul ties, inner connections, and alliances that can actually ruin our leadership and derail our gifting. These people were leaders, but they were leading into ruin. And they were gifted. It's not like they weren't prophetic. But their gifts were being used for harm and not for good. And because of these alliances, they genuinely believe it is important not to allow change, not to allow rebuilding. They must use their leadership and influence to mislead and perpetuate harm. They're not thinking that, but that becomes their solution. Now, I could show you more from the text on this thing, but it's, it's there. You go, you go and have a look at it. Nehemiah explains all this intrigue that's around him. Compromise, conspiracy, betrayal, prophetic gifted betrayal. And ultimately, these unholy alliances, these toxic alliances that are feeding into the power narratives of the day. But it's time to land this. Let me just say this, both evangelical and charismatic conservative churches that say we hold scripture high and we want to follow God. We are, and I say we are, in grave danger at the moment because unlike Nehemiah, we seem content to meet the enemy halfway. And we have believed and preached and proclaimed conspiracy theories. And that's happening in our day. And it's probably happening as I speak from pulpits across the world. And we've abused our prophetic voice and calling and influence. And here's the kicker. And we think this is absolutely necessary to do so. And we defend the toxic alliances that it has created. Because we believe that we will lose power or influence if we don't make these compromises. And yes, this is most evident in evangelical and charismatic churches in the USA. But believe me, it's very prevalent all around us. And I don't like preaching against stuff, but we've got to call it out. Especially if the text is so blatant in kind of shoving in our face what well, that was just, you know, actually causing the city harm. But it's not just in the USA. America have effectively and very effectively exported their cultural wars into our churches and into our homes and into our political discussions and into our efforts at bringing social healing. And so here's where the mistake is. And this was the mistake that was being made by Sanballat and Tobiah's allies in the heart of Jerusalem, the city of God. We have come to believe that we need power and control of the economy to live as good Christians. The church has been seduced with a lie. We believe, we've come to believe for some weird reason, 
that we need Caesar's power to do Christ's work. When has that ever been true of the true church of Jesus Christ? When did Jesus need Caesar's power to do Messiah, King Messiah's work, and to bring the kingdom of God? We've got to understand the lie behind the conspiracy that we are perpetuating. And when we break the lie, we'll break the conspiracy. We don't need to control and have power over education or have power and control of the arts or power and control of the media or power and control of politics in order for us to be salt and light, in order for us to be the seed of God sown into the world to bring it healing and hope and to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. We have never needed Caesar's power to do Jesus' work. We've just needed to be like Jesus and understand his means to power. Somehow we've accepted this narrative that we can Christianize society not by leading people to Jesus. I mean, that is the greatest privilege any of us could actually have. It's to lead someone who doesn't know him to the love and grace of Jesus Christ. But we've somehow believed that we are going to Christianize society by taking control of its structures and its systems. Now, we have to confront its structures and its systems. But how do we do that? See, God's means to power, revealed supremely in Jesus, is self-sacrifice and service and mercy and hiddenness. And I need an amen for this. But our power comes from the secret place, not the marketplace. You go into your closet and you talk to your father and he who sees what is done in secret, he's going to release the rewards that you need. That's the one alliance. Our power comes from mercy, not a political majority. Since when have we needed a majority to follow Jesus? Since when have we needed to win the vote? And so sadly, in our compromise with and our compromise for power, we have Bible teachers systematically compromising Scripture in our day. And they're not outsiders. They've written our textbooks, theological textbooks. They've preached at our evangelistic crusades. They publish in our Christian journals. And they fill our websites with devotional materials. And we have prophets compromising this beautiful gift from God. And they are not outsiders, understand me. They have genuine gifts from the Spirit of God. I mean, some beautiful, stirring poetry. Worship songs that leave you breathless. But they can't see that they're getting this wrong. 
And I tremble because we can get it wrong too if we are not so, so careful about what we see as our means to power. Who are you aligned to? Who are you submitted to? And so truly, church like ours, evangelical, charismatic, we need to recognize We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to forgive. We need to get rid of the lies and restore a knowledge of the truth. We want to see the teaching (laughs) that's going to edify and strengthen the church in her true calling. We want to see the gifts, especially prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. That follows the way of love instead of fear. The answer is not to throw out prophecy, it's to have a prophecy that's completely energized by the way of love and not the way of fear. And the way of Christ's power, not the way of the world's power. So Paul, to, uh, Paul an apostle Paul, wrote to Timothy about what we should do in a situation like this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, it's right towards the end of his life, verse 25. He says this, how are we to respond? Opponents must be gently instructed. Nehemiah could have learned a thing or two. Uh, he wasn't always that gentle, but <laughs> he was firm. Um, yeah, this, he has this response of Jesus. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. We don't want to see people judged. We want to see people's hearts turned. And we can join the cancel culture or we can preach the gospel, but you can't do both. We can't take up anger and shame and start using that against people. That's why I've not mentioned any names. And what's the intent? In this hope that there will be repentance. And listen, you never call someone to repentance if you're not hoping that they will repent and be forgiven. (laughs) You only preach repentance because you want forgiveness to happen. You want to save them, not condemn them. There's this whole, so like, I'm preaching at you, repent, repent, because you want to condemn. That's not Jesus. We don't want to condemn. We want them to come to their senses. What's come to your senses? So that you can see, so that you can hear, so that you can perceive, so that you can understand the world around you. Your senses give you that insight. And escape the trap of the devil, the enemy, who has taken them captive to do his will. And Paul's very clear. This is what can happen to believers when they are not careful. And he's clear on what our response needs to be and the spirit in which we reach out to them. We need to instruct. We, we need to confess. We need to repent. We need to forgive But we absolutely, like Nehemiah, cannot join the alliances of compromise and conspiracy. And then tucked away inside all of this, and I am coming into land. This chaos, opposition, conspiracy, all this is just this amazing. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Boom. Wow. Wow. How much could we rebuild in 52 days in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work, 
if we literally said, so help me God, this is what I am about. And we stayed as close to the center of God's will and purpose. And in 52 days, we gave ourselves to the redeeming and the rebuilding of the things that are lost and broken. How much could we do in 52 days as a community together who chooses, prays first, like Nehemiah, recognizes where the dangers are, what are the things that are broken? So it's not like, uh, no, no, we, we crystal clear. How much could we do in 52 days of absolutely focused response and rebuilding? That was just a thought. And then this. And when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence. They sank back into the spirit that they tried to impose on others. And they realized, they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, the powers and the authorities are always intimidated when the people of God, who seemingly have no power, suddenly do things and you see the help and the hand of God. Explore, can I say that we don't need Cyril? We can pray for him. We don't need him to be the church Jesus wants us to be. We don't even need Alan, you know, bless him. We, we do, we pray for them. But we don't need them to follow Jesus and do what he's called us to do. We just don't need them. We don't need Joe. And we don't need Donald. And we don't need their money. And we don't need their power. If it will be true of us that when people look, they say, this has been done with the help of God. That is all the help we need. All the help we need. I was some remote ethereal spirituality. This changed lives. But it was free from the poison of the enemy. We don't need a majority. We don't need to win an election to follow Jesus. There's been one election. Jesus said, I chose you. You did not choose me. That's the only election you need to follow Jesus. (laughs) He's chosen you before the creation of time. That's the only election. That's the only qualification you're going to ever need. You don't need an election when to follow Jesus. He's already given you the election that matters most. We don't need a majority. We just need the hand and the help of our God. Let's pray together. Won't you stand with me? I just want to invite Holy Spirit, won't you come? And take away every other spirit. I, I, I cut off a spirit of fear now in the name of Jesus. You will not direct our thoughts. You will not control our response. You will not dictate our steps. You will not even call the location of where our lives are going to be played out. As we cut off a spirit of fear, we say yes to the spirit of Jesus, a spirit of power, a spirit of love and self-leadership, a sound, clear mind. You're able to see, you're able to hear, you're able to think, you're able to understand. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
freedom in Jesus' name. We speak. We speak freedom, breakthrough. And Lord, we say to that which the enemy wants to do, we say no. And Lord, in a spirit of prayer and confession, we want to break off any lies that we have partnered with. We nail that to the cross of Jesus. We break agreements with it. We will not listen to you. We will not follow you. We will not fear you. And we ask you, Father God, send that away from us now in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that every gift and every unpacking of Scripture and every teaching would be fully submitted to you. We want to see your anointing accomplish your purpose, and we never want to exploit it or misuse it. We ask you to sanctify our gifts. We ask you to sanctify our mission. We ask you to sanctify, make holy that which you do through us so that the world will be healed. The walls will be built. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Come, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just let him minister to you. Some of you really just sensing it. I'll just pray for a freedom to roll through. Freedom to roll through. Yeah. And I bless you to be healthy in your relationships where some of this stuff is interfering and confusing. Bless you to just have the right boundaries and the right discernment and to, and to gently instruct <laughs> and to go with a longing to see people turn and find this knowledge of truth. Bless you not to pick on the people. Bless you to win them, love them, and see them turn in the name of Jesus. See them turn in the name of Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. We can gather in your name. Amen. Just before we close, anyone got anything to share? Mr. MC? You're good. So now. May the grace, oh, yes, oh, yes, the grace, like, oh, that's an anointing word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, our Abba Father, and the fellowship, that connection of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Amen.